Of all the things you might have learned from this podcast series, from the trivial to the occasionally prophetic, I bet what I'm about to tell you will rank among the most surprising. The most profitable movie franchise in the history of cinema is not Marvel. It's not Harry Potter. It's not Star Wars. It's Jurassic Park. This is according to a 2020 profile in Forbes which took a look at film franchises as investments and measured their rate of return. In other words, they took the total revenues from the films and divided it by the budgets it took to make them, each adjusted for inflation. And yes, that calculation leaves you with animals that last ruled our planet 65 million years ago as the number one box office draw ever. Jurassic Park's origin story isn't one of those ones where the movie studios didn't believe in the film, or it overcame long odds and a myriad of challenges to get produced. Nope. Author Michael Crichton had bids for the movie rights to his novel before he had even finished writing it. In the mid-1980s, Crichton started writing a story that emanated from a little thought experiment he had about what it would take for dinosaurs to be genetically engineered back into existence today. He envisioned a near-future state where a private biotech company figures out how to extract dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes that had been fossilized or preserved in amber, and from that is able to create and clone dinosaurs. In his novel, the company plans to make the dinosaurs a tourist attraction. They develop a theme park on a remote island near Costa Rica. They anticipate that it will be a worldwide phenomenon, but before they can even officially open it, well, things go terribly wrong. So in the fall of 1989, more than a year before Crichton's book would be released, he mentions his story to Steven Spielberg while the two are discussing another screenplay they're working on. Spielberg is enthralled by this story about genetically engineered dinosaurs and tells Crichton he wants in on it. So once the bidding war begins, Spielberg pushes Universal Studios to bid on it. All told, Crichton received at least four mega offers from the major American movie studios, all before he released his book. Ultimately, he picks Spielberg and Universal Studios. Thus began a screen adaptation and pre-production process that lasted more than two years, stretching from 1990 all the way to 1992. Listen to what Spielberg says about his vision for the film. Jurassic Park wasn't a monster movie. It was a movie about animals long ago gone extinct that through the miracle of science and technology are brought into the 20th century. And that's what Michael Crichton had conceived in this amazing book he wrote. And all of a sudden, the second I read his book, I realized that we weren't dealing with monsters. You see, Spielberg went to great lengths to ensure that this wasn't just a monster movie. It was imperative to him that the dinosaurs were portrayed as animals. 
and much of the film's delay in pre-production was due to developing what were truly revolutionary computer visual effects for their day to bring these animals to life. Spielberg tapped Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's visual effects company, to create the dinosaurs. Remember, this was the early 1990s, and computer effects in movies were still pretty rare. According to a 2015 profile in Mashable, up to that point, no film had incorporated CGI animals, living or prehistoric, anywhere close to the scale of what Spielberg set out to achieve. But while history would come to remember the innovations in computer effects, I'd like to call out that Steven Spielberg also made two significant changes to Crichton's novel and adapted screenplay, including how the story ends, that I believe went on to define the film's legacy. More on that in a bit. Anyway, after two years of pre-production, after more than a year of filming and post-production, in the summer of 1993, Universal Studios debuted what would become one of the most successful film franchises of all time. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sutton, welcome to Jurassic Park. The most advanced amusement park in the entire world. What do they got in there, King Kong? We have made living biological attractions so astounding that they have captured the imagination of the entire planet. How'd you do this? Jurassic Park generated nearly double the box office revenue of any other film in 1993 on its way to a worldwide tally close to $1 billion, which still places it within the top 20 movies all time, adjusted for inflation. It spawned a multi-billion dollar empire of consumer products, video games, and theme park attractions, and that's not even including the billions of dollars it's pocketed from the franchise's sequels. Yes, the film was a critical success too, but largely it was praised for its visual achievements and for its scale. And that's the funny thing about this film. It's never mentioned among one of Spielberg's more daring conceptual projects. I mean, when you line it up against other sci-fi or fantasy movies, the time we've collectively spent talking about Jurassic Park's themes or symbolic commentaries is less than fractional. It's barely even measurable. But what if we've all missed something? I watched Jurassic Park as a kid. In fact, it was one of the first non-Disney movies I ever watched. And I still remember how I used to fast forward through the first half of the movie to get to the big dinosaur scenes. Like all kids, heck, like many adults, I couldn't get enough of the film's action. Any dialogue was just cluttering things up. But today, when I rewatch the film, I'm struck by how much I missed. I'm struck by the underlying messages this film is speaking to, lying just beneath the surface. And I'd like to dig them up. 
What if Jurassic Park isn't just a story about envisioning a world where Earth's prehistoric past collides with its present? What if this film wasn't a window to our past, but rather a warning alarm sounding about our future? I think we need to take a second look. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Before we press forward, I want to engage you in a little thought experiment. I will warn you, it's not particularly pleasant, but it is important. Let's suppose you were walking down the road and you came across some railway tracks. Lo and behold, you discover that five people are tied to the tracks and a trolley is barreling towards them. The trolley's brakes are blown. It's powerless to stop itself. There is a lever near you that, if you pull it, would divert the trolley to an alternative railway. But the problem is, there's one person tied to that set of tracks. So, what do you do? If you stand there and do nothing, five people will be killed by this unstoppable trolley. If you take action, you can spare their lives, but you will be diverting the trolley to the alternate track. Your action would cause one person to die. What is the right thing to do? Now, you may think this is some throwaway philosophical thought experiment, or perhaps something out of a bad western, but by the end of this episode, I'm going to try to convince you that this little scenario, as miserable as it may be, isn't just fantasy. It's a question that might be asked in our near future. It might be asked in reality today. But hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Let's return to Jurassic Park. Okay, it may have been a while since you've seen the film, so I'll quickly refresh your memory. Just as with the movie overviews in my other episodes, this won't be comprehensive. Just a refresher, and if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, fair warning, there are spoilers ahead. So, John Hammond, a wealthy businessman and the presumed leader of a biotech company named InGen, has created a theme park on a remote island near Costa Rica that features genetically engineered dinosaurs. In the first scene of the film, one of the park's workers is attacked and killed by a velociraptor, which stirs Hammond's investors into a tizzy. A lawyer, Donald Gennaro, who represents the investors, tells Hammond that he needs to convince them that the park is safe to open to guests. So Hammond seeks credibility from the scientific community. He recruits some of the world's best paleontologists. Dr. Alan Grant, and Dr. Ellie Sattler, to stay with him and Gennaro on the island for a weekend in an effort to get their seal of approval. Gennaro brings famed mathematician Dr. Ian Malcolm as well. 
In the first act of the film, we learn how InGen was able to bring the dinosaurs back to life. We discover that they were able to extract dinosaur DNA from fossilized mosquitoes. We also learn the steps the park has taken to control the animals. Like, for instance, that all of the dinosaurs are female. We control their chromosomes. It's really not that difficult. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. We simply deny them that. Dr. Malcolm, a proponent of chaos theory, suggests that this level of control InGen is aspiring to have over the dinosaurs is impossible. John, the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. Life, as Dr. Malcolm famously states, finds a way. Over lunch, the three scientists, Dr. Grant, Dr. Sadler, and Dr. Malcolm, further press Hammond on the issues. In fact, they all state their case against the prospects of opening this theme park. Hammond and the lawyer, Gennaro, who is now on Hammond's side because his eyes have been opened to the exponential sum of money this place is set to make, try their best to quell the scientists' concerns. So the group sets out to tour the island with Hammond's grandchildren, Lex and Tim, who Hammond says is the park's target audience. During the tour, they encounter a sick Triceratops. The park's veterinarians can't figure out why she's sick, and Dr. Sadler ends up staying behind to work with them. Now, here's where things go wrong. First, there's a tropical storm that force evacuates much of the park's employees and shuts down the rest of the tour. And then, there's a disgruntled employee, Dennis Nedry, who feels underpaid and underappreciated, which isn't great since he's the park's lead programmer and has access to the entire park's security systems. He's been secretly plotting against Hammond and InGen with one of their competitors to smuggle more than a dozen different dinosaur embryos off the island. During his heist, he shuts the power down on the island, locks the entire system, but because of the storm, he crashes his jeep on the way to deliver the embryos and is ultimately killed by a dinosaur. This leaves Jurassic Park and all its deadly carnivores without any security fences or controls. So you know what happens next. This is where Industrial Light and Magic's visual effects steal the show, the rest of the show. In fact, it's downright incredible that these effects still hold up nearly 30 years later. What follows is a series of thrilling dinosaur attack and chase scenes. Ultimately, the lawyer, Gennaro, is eaten by a T-Rex, and Dr. Grant and the kids get separated from the rest of the group. But eventually, everyone gets reunited, and the women, Dr. Sadler and Lex, Hammond's granddaughter, figure out how to turn the power and security back on. 
towards the end of the film, Dr. Grant, Dr. Sadler, and the kids are trying to fight off a pair of relentless velociraptors in the Welcome Center. It appears hopeless until a T-Rex comes to the rescue, feasting on both raptors while the group is able to get away. They stumble back to the helicopter pad and, reflecting on the harrowing experience, fly into the sunset. Jurassic Park was a technical marvel, a blockbuster that harnessed the world's collective fascination with dinosaurs that once roamed our Earth. But this is where the conversation has largely stopped. And this is where I'd like to pick it up. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll reference scenes in much greater depth than I did in my cursory plot overview, so I do encourage you to go back and watch the film after this episode to see firsthand some of what I'm about to discuss. Okay, I'm going to present to you two different interpretations of the film. The first one a bit more literal, and the second, I think, flying a little deeper below the surface. I personally find the second far more interesting to mull over than the first, but it would be irresponsible of me to do an episode on Jurassic Park without at least contemplating both. So, my first interpretation of this film, the more literal one, is that it's a commentary on humanity's obsession and ultimate failure to control our environment. The futility of our ongoing experiment to play God. Our minds are on an unending journey to categorize, explain, and bring order to what is actually a chaotic, random world. And the more we experience this contradiction firsthand, the more we must wrestle with the sobering notion that we're powerless to predict or control our environment. This ongoing friction, you could argue that's a lot of what Jurassic Park is trying to demonstrate to us. And the more we experience this contradiction firsthand, the more we must wrestle with the sobering notion that we're powerless to predict or control our environment. In the film, InGen goes to great lengths to try to create a prehistoric piece of nature in a method they believe is predictable and manageable. But nature, by its very essence, is all-consuming, it's unconquerable, and here are a few ways the film reminds us of this fact. Let's start with Dr. Malcolm, with this theory that life finds a way. In the movie, the InGen scientists try to engineer out reproduction in the wild by making all of the dinosaurs female. But because the DNA they extracted from the mosquito wasn't complete, they filled in the gaps with frog DNA. And we learn later in the film, as Dr. Grant is observing a nest of hatched dinosaur eggs, that some West African frogs have been known to change from female to male in a single-sex environment. Thus, life found a way the dinosaurs were breeding in the wild. InGen's attempts to control their environment failed. Next, it always sort of bothered me that the scene with the sick Triceratops 
felt incomplete. In the movie, it plays out more like an excuse to separate Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant in the plot than it was giving us any more story details. But if you go back to the original screenplay, you will find that the final movie edit didn't give you the full story. Dr. Sattler references multiple times in the movie that InGen leadership chose a bunch of toxic plants to decorate the park to make it look prehistoric. In the scene with the sick Triceratops, we do see Dr. Sadler question whether a toxic plant placed near where the animals eat might be leading to the dinosaur's illness. But the vet says they know she isn't eating the plant. And in a rather famous scene in the movie, Dr. Sadler pours through the animal's stool samples and agrees the animal isn't eating the toxic plant. So here's what the movie didn't show you. In the original screenplay, we learn that some dinosaurs, largely herbivores, eat small rocks with their food because it helps them digest it. And the small rocks were in contact with the toxic plants. I'm sad this piece of the film was cut because it's another demonstration of the unintended consequences of our actions that we human beings often fail to foresee in our environment. The park employees knew to look out for the toxic plants, but they didn't imagine this indirect sequence of events. The small rocks that could lead to, ultimately, the same conclusion. That's the unpredictability of life and of nature. Finally, remember at the beginning of this episode when I told you that Steven Spielberg changed the film's ending? He actually made the switch during production, and admittedly, he probably wasn't thinking about the film's higher thematic message when he did it. The original screenplay had Hammond coming to the rescue at the end, shooting the Velociraptors before they attacked his grandkids. But once Spielberg shoots the T-Rex scene, the iconic scene in the rainstorm with the Jeeps, Spielberg thinks to himself, I've got to find a way to bring this dinosaur back at the end of the film. That's how we got to an ending where the T-Rex saves the day. But whether intentional or not, that revised ending is so subtly brilliant that it still astonishes me. When I was a kid, I thought oh, the T-Rex is the hero. She's coming to save the humans. But of course, that's not true. The T-Rex is just behaving, well, like a T-Rex. She happened to see food and she went after it. And that moment underscored, once again, the unpredictability of nature and the ways that we often erroneously anthropomorphize our environment and animals. It's downright poetic. The same nature that can consume you can also save you. It's both hero and villain, but in a larger sense, it's neither. It just is. It's only our minds that assign meaning. I love that Jurassic Park teaches us the flaws in humanity's efforts to control nature. 
It puts our hubris on full display by juxtaposing the future with one of the oldest recorded life forms on Earth. We often presume ourselves, human beings, to be the center of the universe, but we've been around for something like 200,000 years. Dinosaurs roamed this planet for hundreds of millions of years. In his riveting 2007 book, The World Without Us, author Alan Weissman conducted a little thought experiment where he imagined what the world would look like if human beings all of a sudden ceased to exist. No cataclysmic event, no nuclear war, just that, let's say tomorrow, every human being left the Earth. Now, I'm not doing his book, which was thoroughly researched, justice by synthesizing all of his findings into one sentence, but largely, Weissman discovered that much of what humanity has built, the physical infrastructure, our biggest cities, the bridges, the skyscrapers, it would all be reconsumed by nature in a matter of a few thousand years. In some instances, in just a few centuries, if human beings were no longer around to maintain it all. Every day, from our homes in the suburbs to the underground labyrinth of subway tunnels in New York City, we work tirelessly to keep nature from seeping in, from retaking control. We see humanity's footprint as permanent and everlasting, but nature emphatically reminds us otherwise. On to the second, and I believe more consequential, more thought-provoking interpretation of Jurassic Park. I think you can look at Jurassic Park, a film iconic for its recreation of prehistoric animals, and interpret it in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with dinosaurs. To me, Jurassic Park is an allegory. One that raises a host of fascinating moral and ethical conundrums, questions that may have swayed closer to science fiction in 1993, but are in fact squarely in the camp of science reality in 2020. You see, Jurassic Park is an allegory about the societal dangers that exist in the privatization of science. What I love about Michael Crichton's story is that he correctly predicted something most science fiction writers failed to foresee. That the dangers of technological overreach, the moral challenges of future scientific discoveries, they largely won't be controlled by the government, like so many sci-fi plots envisioned. No, they'll be controlled by the private sector. Crichton imagines a world where scientific and technological breakthroughs would be led by private companies, often advanced for consumer entertainment or convenience, but always for profit. And he asks real questions, questions we're actually grappling with today. Let me take you back to what I believe to be the most important scene in the entire film. It's the scene in the dining room, the one before the chaos ensues, where the three scientists, Dr. Malcolm, Dr. Sadler, and Dr. Grant, are quite literally on the opposing side of the table from the private sector, Hammond and Gennaro, the investment lawyer. 
It's symbolic of the ongoing conflict between scientific discovery and the monetization of that discovery. Here, I need to play you part of what Dr. Malcolm says in the scene. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. In a world of expanding artificial intelligence and consciousness, in a world where four tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, own and regulate the vast majority of the world's data and information, what responsibilities do these companies have to ensure the ethical usage of that information and of that technology? And worse, do the leaders of these organizations feel that they have any responsibility at all? We spent decades fearing a future fraught with governmental overreach. Heck, we still cry in terror at any semblance of perceived government spying or intervention while we willingly give up every scrap of information and content that's ever existed about us to companies that are incentivized to exploit that information for fast and impactful commercial gain. And this line that Malcolm says, you stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could, this is a brilliantly devastating line that speaks to what happens when companies, when people, prioritize short-term commercial gain over what's best for society in the long term. When they don't stop to ask that just because they could do something, does that mean they should do it? Our world is growing increasingly privatized. Heck, even our space program is now largely being run by the private sector. And we haven't spent much time contemplating the very real ways that our future is now in the hands of businesses that often put shareholder value ahead of all else. Because the minute any of us are incentivized to do something or to believe something, well, we often don't recognize how our impartiality is compromised. We don't recognize how we may be inclined to cut corners or overlook burgeoning issues in an effort to get the latest product out the door. It sort of reminds me of that quote attributed to Upton Sinclair that says, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. But what I love about Jurassic Park, the movie, and this is the second big thing that Spielberg changed from Michael Crichton's original story, is that John Hammond, the leader of InGen, is this warm, genteel old man. In Crichton's novel, Hammond was a ruthless businessman. He was sort of a creep. And because of this, Crichton's message sort of hits you over the head. This business is immoral and corrupt. But Spielberg masks this relentless capitalism in a soft shell. He completely recasts Hammond's aura and personality, which is far more representative of our real world. It's not like our company leaders are inherently evil. They're not two-dimensional comic book villains. 
They're real people, people that may have the best intentions, but people that have to serve their investors above all else. And because we're all blinded by their ambition or even their goodwill, we don't condemn them or challenge them enough as their companies amass power. We buy into their charm, their well-constructed marketing messages, and of course, we love the convenience and quality of the products their companies offer us. So we don't see that day-to-day -day trickle. We don't notice the ways in which we relinquish our control to them before it's too late. But the movie didn't stop there. It didn't just raise ethical questions about who should control emerging technology and what responsibilities those leaders should have. It also asked a pretty heavy question about the moral rights of the technology itself. It goes by quickly in the film, but there's a scene late in the movie with Hammond, Dr. Malcolm, and Dr. Sadler in a control room, plotting what to do next while Dr. Grant and the kids are still out in the wilderness somewhere, fending for themselves against the dinosaurs. One of Hammond's employees asks if they should consider the Lysine contingency which was a genetic alteration the park's scientists made that ensured the dinosaurs would be dependent on the employees providing them this amino acid. So basically, Hammond is being asked if they should murder these animals, if they should deprive them of this key element for their survival. And Hammond quickly dismisses the idea, and we move on, but this is another powerful little thought experiment the film raises. In a future state, as we get closer and closer to developing true artificial consciousness, what rights should these creations have? Jurassic Park was uniquely positioned to advance this moral dilemma because it made the technology feel real. In this case, real animals. Do these artificially created animals have certain rights? Or even a right to live? Or are they always at the mercy of our control? You may think this is some sci-fi fantasy question, but in fact, it's one that we should be asking as technology continues to advance exponentially. So earlier in this episode, I asked, what would you do in the case of the runaway trolley? If you were confronted with a trolley that was about to kill five people tied to a track, and you could divert its path, but if you did, you would divert it to a track where it would kill one person. This was a thought experiment that philosopher Philippa Foote drew attention to in a 1967 paper she published in the Oxford Review. And you may think it's one of those frustrating little utilitarian choice experiments that we would never actually have to answer in real life. But I told you... This is something that might be part of our reality in the very near future. And it's a decision that's largely in the hands of private companies. Because this thought experiment is actually being applied to automated cars. As autonomous vehicles inch closer to reality, consider that one day you could be in a self-driving car that is pre-programmed to make a choice comparable to that trolley thought experiment. If your car is on the highway and something unexpected darts in front of it or stops short, does your car swerve into another lane, risking the lives of more people? 
or does it absorb the bulk of the contact, effectively sacrificing you for the greater good of the other drivers? I know this isn't particularly pleasant to think about, but this is the reality. The decision your car makes on that fateful day could very well be determined for you by someone somewhere in a company who advanced their ultimate decision based on, well, science you hope, but perhaps other motivating factors as well, profit potentially being one of them. Do they design these advancements with science and academic morality from the ground up? Or is their technological advancement driven by profits, by consumer demand, and they only seek science's opinion towards the end as some seal of approval like Hammond did when he brought Dr. Grant and Dr. Sadler onto Jurassic Park for a weekend? Is any technology that makes our lives better or easier, is that technology always a good thing? Should it be relentlessly pursued regardless of the motivations driving it? And if the scientific community says it shouldn't, who will we listen to? Jurassic Park is one of Steven Spielberg's most technologically celebrated films, and it's one of the most commercially successful franchises of all time but it's rarely mentioned among his most conceptually daring projects. It actually raises a ton of thought-provoking questions spanning morality, ethics, and the balance of decision-making in a world where scientific achievement is often sparked not in a lab, but in the real world. Not backed by governmental funding, but by seemingly limitless investment dollars. As we speed headlong into the future, what checks and balances have we missed? What way stations have we failed to activate along the way? If science has taught us anything, it's that our environment is often unpredictable. It's nearly impossible to be controlled, and the greatest danger isn't in our desire to control it, but in our belief that this control is an achievable goal. In a world where us, the consumers, are the target of the world's greatest technological achievements, be it for entertainment or to improve our quality of life, it may fall to us, the consumers, to raise these important questions. To demand more from the organizations we willingly allow to infiltrate the nooks and crannies of our everyday lives. This isn't a question of academia versus industry. It's not science or big business. It's a realization that one world is increasingly consuming the other. And if we fail to measure the impact of these blurred lines, well, at least proverbially, we could be swallowed up by the very creations we desire. Dr. Ian Malcolm might be most famous for his astute observation in Jurassic Park that life finds a way. But perhaps he should be remembered for something else he says in the film. Are we so preoccupied with whether or not we could achieve something that we don't stop to think if we should? This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. The first season of my podcast still has a few weeks remaining. If you've been enjoying it, please consider rating it or leaving a review if your local app store allows. 
And sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it too would be a big help. Thanks.